there aren't many 100-year-olds that adopt a tech strategy. But the ACLU is an exception. Here's Marco Carbone, CTO of the ACLU, and Alan Tan, product design lead at ACLU, along with Megan Rose Dickey, senior reporter at TechCrunch. Oh, Donald Glover. <laughs> hey everyone, hope you're having a good day here so far. I think we're all pumped to be here, so yeah. thanks for joining us. So, um, so Marco, yeah. tell me how, how did the ACLU come to, to start a, a tech team? Because I know that you were at the ACLU since 2012. Twelve, yes. So yeah. we always had like a small like web development, web technology operation within the ACLU that I was leading. Um, but in a very traditional nonprofit sort of way, very small team relying heavily on outside vendors and consultants to do our work. Um, and then the uh, election happened, uh, 2016 uh, election. And um, we had an initial outpouring of support right after the election. I think it was what, nine million in the first week? Well, no. So, so <laughs> What's that? Was it was it nine nine million within the like the first week? The first no, so so that was right after the election. It wasn't quite that big, but okay. then it was after the inauguration. Oh, okay. And then the Muslim, you know, the executive order that Trump signed, the Muslim ban, and the ACLU went to court the very next day, got a temporary injunction. It's a moment that was heavily shared on social media, and in that first weekend, it was over twenty-four million dollars that we raised um, on very aging legacy enterprise nonprofit technology. Um, and at that moment, um, our executive director started hearing actually a lot from uh, some, you know, Silicon Valley and other um, influencers uh, around the country, and you know, hear, you know, asking, okay, so what's your what's your technology leadership at the organiza organization? And his answer was there, there was none at, at, the, at the senior level. Um, and so he started, you know, that's sort of I think when he started thinking more seriously about the opportunities that we may have missed by not be not having uh, a mature tech and data uh, operation at the ACLU at the time. So it took a few months to sort of happen, but now I've been in the role uh, as CTO for about a year and a half, and we've grown more than 3x uh, in that time, and we have a product, uh, I would call it a pretty uh, functional pro product and technology yeah. team. Yeah. Nice. And so you, you became CTO after the ACLU went through Y Combinator, which is a Silicon Valley accelerator. Yes. So, like, so what happened in that accelerator, and like, did that kind of lead to? So we we didn't go through the accelerator in the traditional sense. It really, it, it was. I think it was sort of reported that way, but that that's not really how it played out. Really, it was, you know, our executive director Anthony Romero talking to Sam Altman, and, and he invited him to come to Demo Day and kind of mm -hmm. see what the Y Combinator experience was like. And actually, some Y Combinator then, you know, tapped their network and said, "Hey, we've got 2,000 volunteers that." can help you guys out right now because we know that you need some tech technology help and that and that actually did come to pass um, some of uh, some of their volunteers worked on building up our distributed organizing movement which is called people power um, and then some other ones came in and just helped us you know fight some aging infrastructure battles that we just needed we just needed capacity at that time um, but then as part of those conversations um, that that's I think where Anthony RED started to realize that technical leadership was part of the mm -hmm. thing that he needed to build at the ACLU. So it, it came out of those conversations and with, with YC, but with other folks. Got it. Yeah. And so for, uh, for the most recent like midterm elections, um, I know that you both, um, uh, that you both Marco and Alan worked on a couple of, of products kind of like gearing up for that. Alan, could you kind of talk a little bit about, about those products and what, what led you to create them? 
Sure, yeah. Um, so when our team first started out, we were starting to build up our team and to try to get a sense of our, what our capabilities would be. And also within the organization, we didn't really have an in-house product function or in-house design or tech function. So we were looking for like a small project that could help show other people in the organization what uh, we could do. And so one of the first projects we did was uh, something that show people what their congressional districts look like over time. Um, you know, what, what did it look like in 1960 coming up to now? And uh, that was kind of tied to some of the work that we knew would happen in, during the midterm elections because we wanted to show people who their reps were. So we started to think about like, um, if you put in your address, um, who represents you? Mm -hmm. And what does your congressional district look like? Um, yeah, and, and so I'll, t I'll talk a bit more about the larger voting program we built for the midterms, which is um, primarily a get-out-the-vote program. Um, we were focused uh, on local races in particular because after the 2016 election, people were feeling pretty bummed out about the presidential uh, position and um, weren't feeling like they could make that much of a difference. So we really wanted to tell people um, it's not just about these high-profile races that matter, but um, local races matter just as much. Um, um, your, who your local county sheriff is is extremely important in terms of um, uh, immigration or um, policing. And so we wanted to make sure we told people um, how much their vote mattered. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I, I come from a uh, media background. I, spent five years at the New York Times. And so when I was there, we spent a lot of time thinking about different formats and how do you provide the right level of information and the, use the right level of language for um, explaining you know, really complex, dense topics to, to people. Um, and so with the Voter Project, we had um, worked very closely with our organizing team, who was also a fairly new team um, within the ACLU. They were formed in 2017. And so they were very committed to uh, making voting rights a, a big uh, part of their work during the midterms. And we were kind of working with them pretty closely to decide what information do people need to know? What, pe what information do people uh, not have when they go to the polls? And how can we provide that in plain language? And the, the other thing we wanted to do then is have ACLU members and supporters start identifying themselves as an ACLU voter, thinking about when they go into the ballot box, we wanted civil liberties and civil rights issues to be at the forefront of people's minds. Um, and, you know, in the tw tw uh, 2018 midterms, um, the ACLU played a supporting role in the Florida restoration of uh, rights to vote for um, people with felony convictions and uh, voter registration in Nevada and Michigan. And we believe overall that it impacted over two million people's right to vote. Mm. Um, so that was working with coalitions. It wasn't just the ACLU, but it was, it was a big part of the midterms, yeah. Nice. And I wanna talk a little bit more about the, the What the District product. Um, how, did you, how did your team land on, on that product in determining that, oh, this is something that we need to provide as a service to people? I mean, yeah, so no. I mean, it was a conversation with um, our voting rights project, partially, right? And so, you know, we wanted, it, it, you know, it, and also it kind of started with an existing data set. Like we, we knew that we had this access uh, through, a, through a professor. Do you remember where? 
Yeah, um, I don't remember the university, but it's this one person who has been compiling shapefiles uh, for different congressional districts for years now. It's just yeah. one person. So we knew we had the access to this data set. It seemed like a great opportunity to show people a, like a, almost an animation of what their district has, would look like over the past 50 years as it changed. And so talking with our Voting Rights Project, we said, well, you know, can this be a way to talk about gerrymandering as an issue? And they said, well, yes, but not always. Like, just because your district looks funny, it doesn't mean that, you know, there was you know, malicious gerrymandering at play. But it's still important to show people that your congressional district actually is sort of arbitrary. And like who you vote with, like your community that you vote with actually changes over time. Mm -hmm. So like, if, you know, if you look at a, my, like my neighborhood in New York, like sometimes I'm voting with like, uh, I live in like near Park Slope. Sometimes I'm voting like with Park Slope and Prospect Heights. But then in other, another decade, I'd be wo voting with Bay Ridge and, and other mm -hmm. neighborhoods in the South. And like, if you think about the different populations that might be at play there, like that says something. And so we wanted to kind of make an impression on people to think very seriously about their district and what that means. And then the local races that come with that. Mm -hmm. um, there's different districts for local races, but still kind of at play. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, I'm kind of curious, how many people in the audience know which district they're in, just like offhand? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Maybe like, let me say like half maybe? Yeah. How many yeah. people can name their DA? <laughs> I mean, I, and I think like the number of people raising their hands is probably like, I'm guessing like double than it would have been like four to six years ago because the criminal, like the smart justice, what we call the smart justice movement, but the mass, you know, the mass incarceration, you know, the movement to reduce mass incarceration has really become much more visible in the past mm -hmm. four years. And, the fact that your DA is the person who has the m most power, almost the most power in that is, I think now gone mainstream and I think that's just great. Like people are now really being thoughtful about it when they go to the ballot box. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> yeah, and I mean, full, disclo full disclosure, I didn't know which district I was in until, <laughs> until the midterm elections and I was like, oh, like, well, like when am I supposed to be voting? And I had to, it was really hard to find actually and I actually did not come across the ACLU's tool I wish I had, mm -hmm. and, and I guess that just kind of gets me to, like, these are awesome tools, and like, how can you make sure that people actually know that they exist? Yeah, I mean, this is something that the organization needs to mature a bit on. I mean, I think we're, we're a traditional nonprofit. We are 99 years old. We're a multi-issue organization. We have over 50 affiliate offices, uh, 1,500 people throughout the country, many of them lawyers, lobbyists, um, and now organizers. And so thinking about how to promote like product work and digital work is something that we're kind of learning right now. Mm -hmm. And actually I look to the people in this room, people in tech nonprofits, people in uh, private nonprofits who have very mature like, you know, marketing operations. Like the ACLU is looking at that and thinking, hey, we need to be doing a better job of how we're getting the tools out there that both uplift our work and also uplift the work of our communities. So mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's something we're, we're working on. Yeah. yeah, and I would say one thing we're kind of experimenting with a few projects on now is um, when we ask people to share links to our work or to what the district or to um, other campaign work, we usually try to avoid the like stock message where you click on a Twitter, Twitter button and it says like, look at this cool thing. And mm -hmm. it's like very clear that it's this form message, right? Um, as other, others have mentioned earlier today, it's about the personal story. It's about the, the emotion behind any given person's uh, own life experience that matters. So we've been experimenting on a few projects now to uh, allow people to type in, share a little bit about their own story and why this is important to them, and then to have them share out a link tied to that. 
And so what we're doing right now is what we're calling the Rights for All campaign. So um, in terms of the presidential primaries, which is taking up a lot of the public energy right now, we're encouraging our supporters and volunteers to go to the town halls of the presidential primary candidates. Right now, it's mostly on the Democratic side. Maybe soon there'll be primary candidates on the Republican side, but asking our supporters to, to ask questions about civil rights and civil liberties and sort of feeding them questions that we think they might ask, but also giving them the opportunity to write their own. Mm. And then we're going to be looking at, um, you know, collecting video clips and such and compiling these to show how the candidates are responding to the ACLU um, priority issues. Okay, and then kind yep. of displaying that on, on the site in like on an interactive yep. way. Yeah, and then when they change their position in the future, we have something mm. to point to, right? right. So we, we're actually thinking of creative ways to actually show that visually over time. Mm. Like, because it's interesting to see like how like some of the more like progressive candidates start to shift the opinions of the more center candidates. Mm. And then like this, it's almost like you can almost map like how the political opinion changes over the months of the, the primary season. Yeah. Nice. Um, yeah. And so um, obviously the ACLU cares um, cares quite a bit about privacy. So like as you're developing these these new tools, like what are the the privacy considerations that that you take into account? Yeah, this is something that from the very beginning when I was at the ACLU was always a primary concern. And like for a nonprofit like like the EFF, for example, like they also have this concern, but it's almost everyone that works at the EFF probably thinks that way. Where at the ACLU, because we're multi-issue, we have people that work on privacy issues, and mm -hmm. that's like a primary for them. But then we have people that work on, you know, um, reproductive freedom or, uh, you know, racial justice, where it's not that privacy doesn't have a role with those, those issues, but that's not their um, primary mode of thinking. So it's always been a challenge to uh, think about how we build technology in a way that avoids the corporate surveillance world, mm -hmm. and that's something that we take seriously. Um, so, for instance, the voter site, right, we had the ability for people to find the polling location, and the best source of that information is, is the Google Voter Project. But we didn't want to just send, you know, make requests to Google just uh, without people consenting into it. So we just, we're very careful to sh tell people, okay, like, if you want to know this information, this data is coming from Google, you can consent to it and get it. So mm -hmm. it's sort of like a semi-GDPR model. Yeah. But we're not, you know, it's not quite that structured. And, but the ACLU is involved in looking at a, a national privacy regulation, mm -hmm. you know, building on top of what California has done. And so I think we're going to have more to say on that. Okay. Yeah, yeah and it, it also affects, like, the vendors that we talk to and uh, who we can work with um, and incorporate into our, our projects. Um, there's often in the uh, privacy policy clauses for... Um, many tech services, um, a provision about, um, well, they'll provide information on people that have, are on no-fly lists or other kinds of um, government mm -hmm. lists. And since we're often defending a lot of people who might be on those lists, uh, we can't work with those companies, or we will ask them to change their policy. Well, well I, so anyone in here who like takes a terms of service and like copy paste it from another one that they've seen, I, I ask, I, I beseech you to think seriously about that kind of language about your users not being on government lists because. Um, one, you have to think about like how people get on this list, whether there's a fair appeal process, right. and that's something that we work on. But second, organizations like ours actually do represent people that are alleged, you know, people that we believe should not be on those lists who are. And then often we get waivers from the government to use technologies, even though th those people may be on those lists, and we're working for those people um, on the list. So it's, it's even like a small bit of boilerplate language in a terms of service mm -hmm. can have 
massive impact. And so we're doing a lot of behind the scenes advocacy on things mm. like that. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, and I mean, how does that how does that all kind of impact your your product development timeline? <laughs> <laughs> that is a good question. Yeah, I mean, it it that is especially for the you know Alan. I mean, maybe you can answer this because you came from a different world. Um, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know that I have a good answer to that <laughs> except that we try to do a lot of that procurement work up front, and um, we have projects that are smaller or medium term that. Um, often we have to get out the door. And um, this is similar to like the journalism space where a story is, has to be published on Monday or you know, a given deadline. And you kind of have to figure out what you can do within that time frame. We don't have the luxury of waiting often. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I mean, and so that also just kind of gets me to my next question. I mean, like you, you came from the New York Times and, um, and then decided to pursue, pr pursue work at a nonprofit organization. And I mean, as you're building out this tech team, I mean, you're competing also with like the likes of like Google and Slack and Airbnb and for talent. And so how, what's, what's the recruiting process been like? Yeah, I mean, I can say that, you know, the, the difference between recruiting between 2012 and 2015 and 2017 and today, it, it's vast. Like, mm -hmm. I, you know, I would be looking for a senior engineer. I would post a position. I'd have to post it three times, um, change the title, like kind of do all these creative things, like try to get recruiting help. And it was very difficult to get even like a single like strong candidate. Mm. Um, this was before the election. Now you have a bunch of you know, people from the tech world that are dissatisfied with where they're working. And so it, it's been a lot easier. The pools have been a lot richer. Um, I still think you know, we're seeing more uh, progress with some of the younger folks that we're interviewing, people that are like, you know, coming in for internship positions. They're coming from schools where when I was in college, there was no public interest tech uh, you know, uh, group. Um, there was no technology and ethics group. And today there's many of those things at colleges. There's, you know, this public interest technology um, university coalition that was announced three weeks ago, I think, or maybe a month ago. Um, so, like, our lawyers have a huge pipeline of people that are, you know, great, have great legal skills and also have d dedicated themselves to a public interest um, career. That's been less so on the technology side, but it's, we're starting to see that change, and it's really exciting. I hope other people here have, have been seeing that change. Um, yeah, and I mean, what kind of roles are you generally looking for? I mean, you're just kind of looking for like the full, full suite of... It's product managers, yeah. designers, engineers. Um, yeah, we, we look for people who don't have like a singular focus on just design or, or just engineering or just product. Um, yeah. People who have strange backgrounds. We have folks on our team who used to be cartographers, mm -hmm. um, lots of, yeah, lots of mapping people. We have people who used to work in civic tech. Um, and those communities have really like developed significantly in the past few years. And mm -hmm. it has also made hiring like a lot easier. Nice. And um, I'm going to open it up to audience Q&A. Uh, so just, you know, start searching about your questions. Uh, but one more uh, for me for you all. Um, so so far, a lot of the a lot of the the tools that you've you've built have been very like election and like yeah. voting oriented. Do you envision um, do you envision like tackling like other issues like racial justice or like reproductive yeah. rights in um, on your tech team? Yeah, I mean for sure. I mean we've done a few uh, smaller hits on on some of those other issues. So for immigration rights um, during the family separation crisis, 
which is still ongoing in, in other ways. Um, but when it really first blew up, we were doing a project with our data team about showing where the ports of entry are around the country and um, how many families were separated, how many children were separated. Um, We've done projects for um, school discipline. School discipline. So, like, they, they've been a lot of like data-oriented, um, smaller projects. Uh, what our major issue will be for 2020, we actually really don't. We haven't decided yet. The focus has been more on the broader set of issues with the primary candidates. Mm -hmm. The other focus right now, which is less specific issue-oriented, is next year as um, ACLU's 100th anniversary. So we're uh, we have an archivist who's pulling a lot of uh, photos and other media of our history, our landmark cases, the landmark bills that we help pass, and we're going to be working on some, in hopefully, uh, innovative ways for people to explore that content. Yeah, and also probably launching later this month is a revamped uh, section on our site that's more evergreen content. Um, mm. It's a section called Know Your Rights, so it's a series of guides for what to do if you're um, in certain situations, what to do if you're going to a protest, what happens if ICE shows up to your door. Um, so a lot of that uh, content gets a lot of attention due to like immigration or mm -hmm. due to um, people, students protesting um, the lack of gun control action. Um, and yeah, we're hoping that that will have a big impact. Nice. Awesome. Uh, any questions from the audience? Yeah, it looks like we got one right there. Hi, uh, my name is Jenny Williams. I work at Google. Just neither here nor there um, for this question. But I'm curious, uh, you know, you, you talk a lot about your sort of um, digital outreach strategies. Um, but, you know, given the digital divide in the country, and there's a lot of people who, who may be disproportionately affected by the very issues that you're trying to address, who don't have access to, you know, the, the digital products that you're working on. Do you have, um, like, or how do you sort of approach that partnership in your organization to kind of, uh, to tackle that as a, as a, a comprehensive approach as opposed to sort of um, one or the other? I mean, you know, because we're uh, an organization that's been around a long time, you know, we're not a, we, we we're not a digital first organization, right? So our affiliates, in particular our state affiliate offices, already are doing direct work with communities with um, you know, clients in, in uh, vulnerable communities. That is sort of what the ACLU does. So how that translates to the, t the work that we do, like for example, sh like sharing our Know Your Rights content, I mean, that's a, that's a really great question. Um, uh, you know, we've focused a lot on making our content accessible with people with disabilities, but when it comes to the digital divide, that's, it's, hard, it's hard to leap across that. Yeah, I mean, I would say with that, project in particular, um, we know that a lot of our organizers use Know Your Rights content as well, and they print it out in, in little booklets, and they pass it out as training materials. So um, we definitely were cognizant of, of supporting that use case, for example. Yeah. Cool. Uh, looks like we have one right over here in the blue. Hi, Caroline Barlarn from Eventbrite. ACLU, thanks for all the amazing work you do. Uh, I presume also on your 2020, maybe something around the census. And yes. I'm just curious, just to shine a light on the fact that there's a lot of investment going in the census, but I don't know if tech is uh, focused on the census and also the funders in the room investing in uh, the platforms that could help accelerate attention on the census. So I'd love to hear what you are doing in that front. Thank you. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, ACLU's been heavily involved in the, the, the citizenship question part of the census. Um, we're in the 
you know, been in the courts. But um, in terms of, uh, you know, what's happening next year with the census, completion rates, I actually don't know too much about what our priorities are in that space. And I actually had a conversation with someone who's in this room. Is Jim Fuckerman in this room right now from Tech Matters? Yeah, we, <laughs> here he is in the back. He just brought up this to me last week and he said, hey, like, this is something that, are you guys thinking about this? So the answer is, I'm going to go talk to some people at the organization in the next few weeks and ask around and say, hey, what, what are we doing in this space? Because I, I don't really know what our priorities are as an organization there. Yeah, beyond the citizenship question. Mm. <clears throat> All right, I think we probably have time for one more question. Looks like one right back there. Hi, my name is Disney, and I work at Postmates, which is also neither here nor there for this question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so before working at a tech company, I worked in nonprofits, and one of the things that I always find really interesting is why a lot of people move into tech is for compensation. So when you're talking about recruiting, one of the big things that comes up is people are like, oh, I'm not really sure if I want to work in a nonprofit or in the tech nonprofit space because I could go work at a traditional tech company and make more money. So how do you all answer that question? Or do you find that the purpose piece of the work really takes care of that? Or are you actually paying competitive rates to tech companies? And if you are, we should be advertising that. <laughs> well, we're not paying Google rates, that's for sure. <laughs> no. No, we're pretty upfront with people that it's, it's going to be lower than what you'd get at for profit. But I think what we're also trying to convince people that it's higher than you think it is, right? I think a lot of people have an impression that working at a, a nonprofit, what, you know, what the salaries are, and like, let's like talk to us and 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 uh, you know, let's 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 talk about it. I mean, this was something that when I stepped into this role was a huge priority of mine. Like, you know, one of the first asks was we need to pay more competitively, um, and that's something that we've been able to do more. I'm also part of um, very recently in the past six months, um, been part of the net, uh, network of CTOs for good, and so being able to talk to other CTOs of, of tech nonprofits and sharing, you know, sharing some information about. Um, what people's salaries are and, and how competitive it is has been very helpful for myself, but also to make it to make a case with um, you know leadership at the organization. So it's something that yes, like if 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 that's the reason why you're not applying for a job at the ACLU, please apply and let's talk and like and um, we may we may surprise you. Okay. Yeah. The yeah. the other thing that I think people working at large tech companies talk about a lot is the scale, and I would say. The one advantage we have at the ACLU is we're also a huge uh, organization. We have 54 affiliates. We're nationwide. So we also have some scale that is, is helpful when recruiting. We are unfortunately out of time, but thank you so much to the both of you. Thank you, ma'am.